Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special summer episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a high school humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. This episode is part of our ongoing efforts to explore debate in public life. My guest this episode is Gleaves Whitney. Gleaves is the director of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. He's a nationally recognized presidential scholar and author, and um, pertinent to our episode today, he is the founder of the Common Ground Initiative. Gleaves, welcome to What's the Res? Thank you, Josh. Well, let, let's start with the basics. Did I get all the titles correct and everything? You sure did. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, help our listeners with this. What exactly is the Common Ground Initiative? The Common Ground Initiative is a program that I started at the Hellenstein Center for Presidential Studies back in 2012 with a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. That gives us a little bit of a seal of approval, you know, sort of a good housekeeping seal of approval you know, right, that, right. that people seek. And at that first Common Ground Initiative, what I did was I brought conservatives and progressives onto the same stage. This is a way, I teach at a public institution, so this is a way that you can bring both sides to the debate. So often the complaint out there, sometimes justified, sometimes a little unfair, is that, well, there are never any conservative voices you know, presented in the academy. But you know, I find that actually a number of professors welcome, even if they personally disagree with, the uh, voices of conservative thinkers. So I brought them together with the progressives on stage, and we had a, a wonderful conversation about some of the topics that were fiercely debated in our country. Could you give us some examples of some of those topics? Well, first you have to start out with the basics. And this is something that when Martha Nussbaum came from the University of Chicago to, mm -hmm. to look at our programs and actually participate, she called what we were doing a, a radically wonderful experiment in civic participation and democracy. And the reason she did that is because we go back to the basics. We search not just for ephemera. I mean, you can say a lot of common ground efforts are really pretty trivial because they're over issues that no one really cares about, uh, or they're about procedural issues that everyone can care about. We try to get out of that little set of common ground initiatives. We try to tackle some really big problems. We go back to the founders, the founders' wisdom. The founders didn't expect everyone to get along. In fact, they designed a system. They recognized a civil society in which there's a lot of dissent, energetic dissent, all the time. So how do you leverage that dissent? Well, you find good topics you know, to illustrate for the public. Uh, if I may, uh, I, well, there, there are a lot of directions we could go in this conversation, but if you just look at how the founders themselves handled dissent, for example, one of the big questions was, what kind of republic are we going to be? Hmm, you had question. Jeffersonian Republicans, Hamiltonian Republicans, and Adamsian Republicans. The Jeffersonian Republicans wanted us to be an agrarian republic. The Hamiltonians wanted us to be a commercial republic. And the Adamsians, with their town squares and everybody looking inward at each other, wanted us to be a virtuous republic. So the founders started us off. And if you read their writings, you see how they asked big questions to get uh, at the core of issues. For example, they would ask a question like, how do the people achieve a happiness? Not just the pursuit of happiness, but how, how are people happy? George Washington, Hamilton, mm -hmm. Jefferson, they all write about the, the happiness question. Well, if you start there, you can go off in a lot of different directions to debate. And they, you know, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You take it in chunks that are discreet and easy so to are, are, is, I mean, is that the sort of resolution or topic that a progressive and a conservative, like if y'all had a, 
what is the progressive answer to happiness versus what is the conservative answer to happiness? Or what, what kinds of what kinds of specific uh, kind of ideas have you guys debated through this Common Ground initiative? Well, we've had, for example, two individuals who are really attuned to the founding. So Robbie okay. George came in from Princeton, Cornell West, his colleague, uh, teaches now at Harvard. They've come in and oh, okay. that program was actually carried on C-SPAN when we hosted them uh, mm-hmm. several years back. And they took a whole bunch of issues from the extent to which religion should impact us in the public square. Both of them were very good, Josh, at reframing the debate. So often when you enter a debate, it goes nowhere because you don't know how to frame the debate so both people sure. can speak productively about it. Well, once Cornell West and Robbie George agreed that having religious sentiments inform legislation, inform law, that's a good thing. It doesn't mean everybody has to be a believer. It doesn't mean that people's freedom of religion or no religion won't be respected. But you frame the debate. Is there something salubrious about having religion in the public square? And both of them, for instance, could agree to that from their progressive and conservative viewpoint and then go from there. Okay. So they were able to talk about all kinds of issues from abortion to economic justice. And again, Robbie was able to take sort of the economic justice issues, which, you know, are, are one of the lines of attack coming from the left. Mm-hmm. And he was he reframed it by saying, you know, people on the right do want the dignity of the individual. When you're talking about justice, you're talking about what's due. And that's at base what dignifies the human person if you honor what is due them. So it turned out to be a pretty productive conversation. So this really is all about two people from two different political positions coming together in a public space and then conversing about the most important questions of our political life together and hopefully growing an understanding of what each other believes so that they can seek the common good together. That's absolutely right. In fact, let me tell you a little anecdote that's kind of cute and illustrates what can happen. Now, Robbie George and Cornell West, we know that they're going to cancel each other's votes out, right, in, in any given November. Well, that's Robert George of Princeton. And help me with where Cornell West is from. I'm not familiar. He teaches I'm, currently at Harvard. Oh, okay. And, and what, what field? I'm, I'm less familiar with him. He's a theologian, but he also teaches great books, uh, you okay. know, everything from Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard. So okay. And he's definitely on the political left, and Robert George is on the political right. That's correct. Okay. Excellent. Got the context? Great. So you know they're going to cancel each other's votes in November. However... They're able to talk about deep cultural issues in a way that's that's really a lot of fun. And they've established, and this is very important, they've established an emotional and an ethical bond. Because once you establish an emotional and an ethical bond with another human being, it's hard to caricature them just as, oh, they're somebody on the left, or they're just somebody on the right, and make a cardboard caricature of them uh, to you know simplify who they are as, as a person. And so... You know, Cornell West especially is so good at this. And, and again, I urge listeners to go to the C-SPAN broadcast of this. But he leans into Robbie George as he's listening and he's stroking that goatee of his and he'll put his hand on Robbie George's forearm and say, Brother Robbie, I understand what you're saying. And Robbie, who's a little bit more restrained, will we'll start to get into it and okay. you know, say, well, Brother Cornell, I understand your point as well. So I introduced this program, went and sat down on the front row next to my wife. And Mary Eileen leaned over to me about two-thirds of the way into this whole program, and she said, you know, if married couples treated each other like this, there'd be no need for marriage counseling. <laughs> That's Finding good. common ground and having the commitment to the other 
as though that person were a spouse in the search mm. for truth is a wonderful, liberating, and intimate relationship to be in. And it, if both people, if both interlocutors will approach the search for truth that way, good things can happen. And isn't it radical to say, you know, I'm not here to talk to you just to win an argument. You know, winning is conquest. I'm here to persuade. I want you voluntarily. Oh, and you have a good point. And you say to me, you have a good point. And then you start to make progress. Now, it's interesting to hear that from, from your perspective and in your context. In our context, in terms of competitive debate, we, we are intentionally gunning for the win. Um, but one of the fascinating things that I, I love watching happen, it happens every year, uh, I have students who get a hunger for debate. And they learn how to structure their arguments. And then they, but then about halfway through the year, they pick up another very important skill for competitive debate. They learn to listen to what the other side says. Because in our context, you write your constructive case, and but the rebuttal speeches are always freeform. They're straight-up response. You don't get to know in advance. And so, but listening to the other side is really the key to victory. And but what that actually does is it enables some really impressive friendships to occur. Because people will have the strongest debates, they'll be super passionate, they'll all have their evidence up against each other. But at the end of the round, they shake hands and they're, they're, they're great. The debate forms this kind of sportsmanship, sort of friendship kind of relationship. Now, tell us a little bit about the context in which these discussions are happening. Is this, was this at Grand Valley State or was this at another, and you said C-SPAN, so was this at... Uh, is that being filmed at a C-SPAN studio, or how, how did that debate work out? That was at Grand Valley. Okay. Virtually all of our Common Ground initiatives are at Grand Valley. Okay. So that we can involve both students and faculty on the one hand and community members on the other hand. Are they, are they pretty well attended? Is this something students and faculty are interested in? That particular debate was probably attended by 600 people. Wow. That sounds fantastic. Uh, now, do you find, I mean, so why, why is this worthwhile? I mean, the, the National Endowment for the Humanities is obviously willing to... Uh, I, I've looked through their grant website. That, that's not an easy grant to win. Uh, so why is this worthwhile? What's the, what's the rationale behind this program? Well, the founders never expected everybody to agree on everything. And in fact, we'd be uh, unfree if that were to be the case. There have been rulers who've tried to impose common ground. Napoleon did it, mm. for example. Hitler and Stalin tried it. But we know that people in the spirit of freedom will rebel against this. So it's that's a losing proposition. So if you accept the human condition as one of, well, we we have, you know, that part of our reptilian brainstem that wants victory, that wants to crush the opposition, and that wants to assert self, you know, what St. Augustine called libido dominandi, that's half the equation. The other half of the human experience is coming from the prefrontal cortex. It's that part of the brain and our sentiments and our heart in which people cooperate with each other because then they know greater things can be possible, especially if people have an ethical and a spiritual vision that unites them. Incredible things happen. Mm. So as part of the, the teaching, I, I go through a series of exercise with, exercises with our Cook Leadership Academy fellows and also at the dinner the night before the debate, I will talk to the, the, the contestants, as it were, mm -hmm. the, the uh, progressive and the conservative, and, and talk to them a little bit how, how strange it is, for example, that civilizationally, if you watch how a whole people will go through thresholds and they never go back to contesting. So let me give you an example. You can imagine that when that Neolithic village, say 10,000 years ago, 
is making the transition to civilization. And they realize to do it, they're going to have to undertake these large engineering projects, build canals so that they can irrigate far-flung fields. Sure. Can you imagine the debate that must have caused? No, that's <laughs> the water god does not want that. And the, the, the gods of the, the cultists, the agriculture gods, don't want this to happen. And we, what does that mean for the way we work? And who's going to be in control of that project? And then who's going to maintain it? And, and will it be tempting then for our neighbors to come and steal our surplus when we do that? Imagine all the debates. And yet every higher civilization from China to India to the Mesopotamian region, where you had a whole series of irrigation civilizations, to Egypt. All of them adopted it, and once they did, they never went back. So one generation's contested ground becomes the next generation's common ground. Now, how does this happen? How does it happen simultaneously, relatively speaking, over about a 500-year period that all of these civilizations adopt this? But you know that it was contested originally. So we talk about that. And then there's some, there's some techniques that we use as well that I certainly want the students to be aware of. They're cognitive techniques that help people understand each other. And you just mentioned one of them. It's, it's called echoing. So, and, and Carl Rogers was the famous psychologist who said, when you're speaking with somebody else, make sure that that other person can tell you what you're saying to your satisfaction, not to their satisfaction, but can they repeat your position from your point of view, and then the intellectual talent of reframing that we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. These are cognitive things we can do. Um, effectively, uh, behavioral, emotionally, there's things that we can do too. Uh, one of my favorite people is Robert Quinn. He wrote a book called Building the Bridges as You Walk on Them, and he teaches people how to share core stories. So, for example, you and I might be People who, you know, say I'm a progressive and you're a conservative, and we would know in advance of our conversation we're going to cancel each other's image. Sure. Okay. So Bob Quinn has this structure where he says, okay, now, Josh, you tell your, your core story. What is your identity in two minutes? And then I tell you my identity in two minutes. And then all of a sudden you're starting to get a picture that maybe we've both gone through something really tough that's forged our personality and our character. And Quinn will say, well, do it again. Another round. You do two minutes, I do two minutes. And then a third round. And then he says, okay, you really know something. You've heard six minutes of the other person's real emotional core story about who they really are. What's going to be in the dash they've lived on their tombstone between their birth and their death date? What's in that dash? What's the emotional content of it? Now he says, go back now and find what you have in common out of those three core stories you've shared with each other. And it's remarkable. I've mm. never seen that fail, where once people are a little vulnerable and reveal about themselves, maybe a broken family in their childhood, where they've lost a job, where they failed in an educational endeavor, they start to make connections with the other person. So those are cognitive and emotional techniques. They're behavioral techniques. They're, they're a number of things. So you bring these folks in. For, for more, this is obviously more than a day then. This is a, a couple of days, and you get to work with them, and they're part of uh, working with students, and then they have this discussion. How often, are you, how many times a year? Is this once a year, twice a year? How, how often do y'all have these sort of events at Grand Valley? I try to have six or seven a year. Wow. And then we have the Progressive Conservative Summit, 
which is sort of the epitome or the the, 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 the climax at the end of the year where we have really a number of people we bring on stage in search of deeper common ground. So, for example, this last April, we had Brad Berzer talk about beauty as a source of deeper common ground that can unite people from across the spectrum. And we had Elizabeth Lash Quinn. Now, this Betsy Quinn is uh, Christopher Lash's daughter. I know the name Christopher Lash, but I'm blanking on why I know that name. Great, great social thinker who okay. wrote books in the 70s and 80s. The Culture Excellent. of Narcissism. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I've heard of it. I, I need to read that one. So we have, you know, this up-and-coming conservative thinker in Bradley Berzer, and we have this up-and-coming progressive thinker in Elizabeth Lash Quinn talking about transcendental values that unite them across their voting patterns. And this is a beautiful thing to behold. This is why it matters, because once you see the humanity of the other, you really start to form true community. And out of that community comes great, great civic participation and understanding. We're never saying everybody should agree with everyone on anything. That, that's stupid and utopian, and I, I wouldn't want to live in such a world. But we can make progress from maybe going from, say, 20 30% agreement to 40 50% agreement. The society is better than it was when it was more divided, and it's turning that pluribus into more of an unum, if not an entire unum. That's a great way to phrase I love that phrase. And uh, Gleaves, it seems very fitting that we're having this conversation in Russell Kirk's library here in Macosta, Michigan. I know you're also a senior fellow at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. Uh, most of our audience, I suspect, is not very familiar with Dr. Kirk. Could you give us just a very brief introduction to Dr. Kirk and your work with the Kirk Center? Well, I first met uh, Russell Kirk back in 1987. We had corresponded with each other in 1986, so I didn't get to know him long. He passed away in 1994. However, the years in which I did know him were a, a treasure. Russell Kirk is one of the founders of the traditionalist wing of the post-war conservative intellectual movement in America. So that means after World War II, you had this great resurgence of conservative thought after many years of Roosevelt and, and Truman. And what Russell Kirk was trying to say is that we are a very complex nation and we are more than just a liberal nation. You know, you had people like Lewis Hartz and Lionel Trilling and others saying that essentially our tradition, you know, you just go Hobbes, Locke, Jefferson, Madison, you know, we are simply a, a liberal nation. Well, what Russell Kirk did in his first great work of 1953, which was a bestseller, and which was all over the place back in the 50s, was the conservative mind, which became kind of a, a Bible for the traditionalist conservatives, because what he does in that wonderful opening book, which is a doctoral dissertation, I mean, how many doctoral dissertations become bestsellers? But what he does is he finds 32 speakers, 30, 32 writers, whose voice informed the traditionalist conservative movement that really has informed a lot of American history, but it was kind of a hidden history. And the origin of it is deep in Western civilization's past, and people like Cicero and St. Augustine of Hippo and St. Thomas Aquinas, but in response to the French Revolution of the late 18, 1700s, 18th century, it uh, finds a very powerful voice in the British statesman Edmund Burke. And Russell Kirk sees Edmund Burke as formulating a, a, a conservatism appropriate to the modern condition mm. where, you know, world is king and change is all about us. So how do we find those elements of continuity that 
keep humanizing us and returning us to our roots as a people, as a culture, and as a civilization. That's fantastic. I, I really appreciate that uh, that introduction to Kirk. I think our our, our listeners uh, would be well served to take a look at the conservative mind, and uh, certainly uh, my students will be. They they've all several of my students have read short pieces by Kirk along the way, and next year will for sure. It's hard for younger readers who are not well versed in the intellectual traditions of our civilization, our country, to start with the the, the conservative mind. I highly recommend they start with a little book that I had the honor of editing called The American Cause, which talks about the religion, philosophy, economics, and politics of the American founding and why that's important. You could also start with The Roots of American Order, which is a big book, but it's written so that people can understand our deep roots, our civilizational mm-hmm. roots of where we come from as Americans. Oh, that that's a very helpful recommendation. Well, uh, are, are both of those books available on Amazon? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, good. I'll, I'll be sure to tag links in the show notes for this episode then so that uh, folks can find those. Um, I know it's we – ha- we have – at my school, we have uh, 15 key values that we're trying to help our students uh, appreciate. One of those is a rather ambiguous phrase, traditional American values. And I, I think, Russell, that introduction, uh, you said the American way, is that the right title? American cause. The American cause. That might be a helpful way to help some of our students really appreciate what exactly are those founding principles, those philosophies that go into the American founding. Well, Gleaves, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there, uh, is there anywhere on the internet that people can follow you or, or can find your work? Well, you can certainly go to the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies uh, at GVSU. So it would be gvsu.edu slash hc, gvsu.edu slash hc. For my work at the Hauenstein Center, I also have a blog. And, uh, you know, you can see the work on C-SPAN and a recent article, essay that I just had published in Modern Age, uh, 16 books on Amazon.com so you can that I've edited or written, so you can find stuff all over the place. And... Yeah, it, it's, it's been fun. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Gleaves, for this summer episode of What's the Res? I'm so glad that you could be on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. A lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your continued interest in What's the Res? If you like what you've heard today, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. That's the best way to help people find our show. Be sure to keep listening. In the first week of July, we've got some big announcements coming up on the show. Until then, you can check out our new website at www.whatstherez.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at whatstherez underscore or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash whatstherez backslash. Until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek truth.